All right, boys and girls. Can anybody tell me what this is? Not, not you two. Anybody else? What does it look like? It doesn't look like any animal I know. It's a stuffed monster. Not just any monster either. This is the what-if monster. Y'all know what a what-if monster is? What if monster is that little voice in your head that when you're trying something new, tries to make you scared by saying, what if, like maybe it's the first day of school, you're going to a new class, and that what if monster says, what if nobody likes me? Or maybe you're going to try something new, and the what if monster in your head says, what if something goes wrong? What if something bad happens? What if I make a mistake? What if everybody laughs at me? You ever had those kinds of thoughts before? Yeah. You know, I had a what-if moment yesterday. I said, what if Tennessee actually beats Georgia? (laughs) And then the what-if monster said, nah, it's not going to happen. So, But there's a book that I want to read to you about this what-if monster, okay? Can I read a book to you real quick? It's called Jonathan James and the What-If Monster. Some what-if monsters like to hang out and fill up our heads with worry and doubt. They are sneaky and quiet and quick as a blink. The words that they whisper can change how we think. Jonathan James heard those words full of dread, and all those what-ifs got stuck in his head. What if you tumble? What if there's wind? What if you slip and your knee gets all skinned? What if they giggle? What if it's chilly? What if you jump and look really silly? What if it's hard? What if you're bad? What if they laugh and make you feel sad? What if it's ugly? What if it stinks? What if that's what everyone thinks? What if it's yucky? What if it's icky? What if mom yells because you're too picky? That never happens to y'all, does it? (laughs) What if it's dark? What if it's scary? What if something giant and hairy? What if you lose? What if you're last? What if you're slow and never get fast? What if she laughs? What if she runs? What if she thinks... You're not any fun. Now, wait just a minute. I have something to say. After hearing what-ifs all through the day, I hear all your worries. I hear all your claims. But what if you're wrong, asks Jonathan James. What if I climb to the top of that tree and I never slip or skin up a knee? And what if I jump right into that pool and everyone thinks I look really cool? And what if baseball is nothing but fun? And I end up hitting a triple home run. And what if my drawing goes up on the wall and everyone thinks it's the best one of all? And what if I taste some of that food and it puts my mouth in a really good mood? And what if I run in a really big race and I have a great time no matter what place? And what if I sleep and have the best of dream that monsters are sweeter than they all seem? And what if the chance I take in the end is just how I find my very best friend. Now, you might think that boys and girls are the only ones that have a what-if monster. But guess what? Moms and dads and grown-ups have what-if monsters too. And we worry about things like, what if I'm not a good mom or dad? 
what if I mess up and give someone the wrong answer when they ask me a question? What if I don't get that job promotion? What if my house doesn't sell? What if she doesn't get that scholarship for the college she wants to go into? What if the stock market crashes? What if the doctor gives us bad news? Moms and dads have what-if monsters too. But you know, I have a what-if. What if the what-if question isn't as much about fear as it is about possibility? What if we trusted our lives to God and He did so much more with our lives than we could ever do on our own? You know, Paul writes a verse in Ephesians 3.20 that says that God is able to do immeasurably more than anything we could ever ask or even imagine according to His power at work in us. So let's take all those what-if fears and what-if problems and let God turn them into what-if possibilities. Because we don't have to worry about the what-if monster in our head if we have Jesus in our hearts. Let's pray. Jesus, we all struggle with fears and worries and problems and We can let those what-ifs really get in the way of us trusting you. God, forgive us and help us to trust you. Help us to let you take our problems and our worries and turn them into possibilities and into worship. And help us to follow you no matter what. Because you give us the greatest what-if. What if we trust our lives to the Lord? And you promise to do with us far more than we could ever ask or imagine. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're beginning this sermon series called, What If? I thought that book probably was a great way to introduce this whole sermon series. And God gave King Solomon his own What If scenario. Now Solomon had completed the building of the glorious temple in Jerusalem. And he called all the people of Israel to come and they were going to have a beautiful worship service and a dedication ceremony of that temple. And after Solomon had this beautiful ceremony and offered all these sacrifices and he offered this prayer to God and and asked for God to bless the temple, bless the prayers of the people directed toward the temple, bless the sacrifices that will be offered in the temple and to bless the entire nation of Israel. At that point, God spoke. And what God said wasn't exactly what Solomon expected. God presented a what-if scenario to the people of Israel that sadly came true. But what if you turn away? It's 2 Chronicles 7, beginning in verse 19. But what if, I'm adding the what, it just says but if, but what if you turn away and forsake the decrees and commands I've given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them? And then he tells them what? Then I will uproot Israel from my land, which I've given them, and will reject this temple I've consecrated for my name. I will make it a byword and an object of ridicule among all peoples. And though this temple is now so imposing, all who pass by will be appalled and say, Why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this temple? People will answer, Because they have forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers who brought them out of Egypt and have embraced other gods, Worshiping and serving them. That is why he brought all this disaster on them. See, God knew that his people, the people he chose, 
The people that He carried and delivered from Egyptian slavery. The people He blessed with miracles and victories. And He had given them this promised land. And He had this temple built for them. He knew these people would someday forget all of that. And they would reject the Lord their God and worship the idols and the false gods of their neighbors. He knew that they would become corrupt and worldly and unjust and immoral and that He would have to respond with the harshest of discipline to His children. He would have to bring judgment upon them. Israel's failure should really be a wake-up call for the church in America. I mean, we can't just sit back and think, well, we're Americans. We're the church. We're God's chosen people, and so we don't have to worry about anything. I mean, if even Israel and Judah could turn from God, if the temple could be desecrated and destroyed, we can't assume that we're off the hook. See, when God's people turn from Him and forget their purpose and their mission and live only for themselves, God will not stay silent. When we trust in the rulers and the powers of this world, when we build up idols in our hearts and our worship just becomes rote and empty, God will not sit idly by. We are in the middle of our own what-if scenario as a culture and as churches. Christians have forsaken the Great Commission. And instead, we focused on ourselves and our comforts, wanting to be served rather than to serve, wanting to be entertained rather than edified, wanting to have our ears tickled rather than our hearts pricked. Churches eager to please the politically correct social elites have rejected the clear teachings of the Bible and embraced politically correct ideologies. Christian families spend little or no time praying together. Worshiping together, serving together, reading God's Word together, witnessing together, because they're too busy. They're too busy off being entertained and buying more stuff and staying distracted. America is sick. Our culture is decaying from within. And we need healing. But there's something crucial We need to understand about healing for America. It will not come from the Supreme Court. It will not come from Congress. It won't come from the White House or Wall Street or Hollywood. Before America can experience cultural healing and spiritual awakening, the church in America must be revived. And that's the what-if scenario that I want us to focus on this morning. Before God spelled out that coming rebellion of Israel and Judah and the judgment that that would come, God gave the solution. Before He mentioned the problem, if we go up to verse 14, God has already given the solution. He says this. He says, If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. This morning I want you to focus on you, on your family, on our church, as we ask, what if? 
And the first question is, what if we humble ourselves? What if we humble ourselves? That Hebrew word for humble literally means to bend the knee. When we bow, when we bend our knees in prayer, it is a sign of our humility before God. Now, we know the opposite of humility is what? Pride. Exactly right. And there are two kinds of pride that we especially have to avoid as Christians, as the church. One is self-sufficiency, and the other is self-righteousness. One pastor said, The stench of our self-sufficiency is a nauseating smell in the nostrils of God. We have to remember, it was pride that got Satan kicked out of heaven. It was pride that led to Adam and Eve getting kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Pride is that attitude that says, I've got this. I don't need God. I can figure this out. I don't need to know what God says. There's a story about uh, the famous boxer Muhammad Ali. Those of you who are younger than my age, I guess, probably don't know who he is. Uh, He could sting like a butterfly and float like a bee. And he got on an airplane, and he was standing up on the aisle, and he... Did I mess that up? He could float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. But what he couldn't do is what he was trying to do. He was standing up in an airplane, and he was telling jokes, and he was cutting up and laughing to everybody on the airplane there. And finally the stewardess came back to him and said, Mr. Ali, you'll have to take a seat and fasten your seatbelt because the plane is about to take off. And he looked at her, just full of pride in himself. He said, Honey, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And she looked right back at him and she said, Honey, Superman don't need no airplane. Now take your seat. Pride says, I don't need God. I've got this. Humility says, I don't need anything but God. See, we like to think that we are so self-sufficient and independent and You know, there's this rugged American individualism, this great spirit of rugged individualism that is great when it comes to building a country. But it can become an idolatrous attitude when it comes to building our lives and our families and our churches. Alex Haley, the author of Roots, kept a picture in his office of a turtle sitting up on a fence post. And when asked about the picture for an interview, Haley said it was a reminder of a lesson he learned long before. He said, if you see a turtle on a fence post, you know he had some help getting there. And he went on to confess. Anytime I start thinking, wow, isn't this marvelous what I've done, I'll look at that picture and remember how this turtle, me, got up on that post. See, we are so much more dependent on others than we like to admit. And we are so much more dependent on the grace and the goodness of God than we'll ever really know. Someone once wrote, they that know God will be humble, and they that know themselves cannot be proud. Amen? Consider for a moment whether you're guilty of self-sufficient pride. How often do you attack the problems in your life as if it all depends on you figuring them out? How often do you approach your work with the attitude that says, well, if I want it to be done right, I have to do it myself. Think about your marriage, your finances, your health, your parenting. How dependent are you really on the Lord's strength 
and wisdom and power rather than on your own. We need to be aware of self-sufficient pride. We also need to be aware of self-righteous pride. See, this was the pride that Jonah suffered from, remember? Jonah forgot what it was like to be lost. He forgot what it was like to be hopeless and helpless and dependent on the mercy of God. And so God had to humble Jonah. Jonah's pride had caused him to run away from God and have hatred in his heart for others who were far away from God. Our New Testament reading today was a story that Jesus told about self-righteous pride. About the Pharisee who stood proudly and was thankful that he was better than everyone else. And Jesus contrasted him with the sinner who wouldn't even look up to heaven but beat his chest and said, Have mercy on me, God. I'm a sinner. Which of the two did Jesus say was justified? Which of the two did Jesus say would be exalted? How often are we, though, like that self-righteous Pharisee, unable to see just how much we need God's mercy and grace. It's so easy to fixate on other people's faults and failings. It's so easy to get hung up on other people's sins and sicknesses and forget that we've got our own issues. And that thankfully God loves us and uses us in spite of ourselves. Now Jesus said, Focus on the two-by-four that's sticking out of your own eye before you worry about the speck of dust that's in your brother's eye. So rather than criticize someone who is weak where you're strong, rather than criticize and complain about someone who's struggling where you tend to succeed, what if we patiently came alongside that person and put our arm around them and said, I'm going to help you to learn a skill that you don't know. I'm going to encourage you in this area where you're weak. I'm here with you. I'm at your side. I'm in your corner. I want to help you succeed in your goals. Today we hear a lot about tolerance and tolerating people. You know what? Tolerance is not a Christian virtue. Do, do you really want me to walk up to you and say, Blake, I tolerate you. No, I love you, Blake. You got it. Now, the, the, the mustache thing we tolerated, right? But, uh, but we love you, Blake. No, tolerance. We hear about tolerate. Tolerance is not a Christian virtue. Love is a Christian virtue. Amen? God doesn't want us just to tolerate each other, just to put up with each other. He wants us to love one another, enough that we're willing to lay down our lives for each other. That's love. Sacrificial, self-giving love. What if we had that kind of compassion on the people in our lives? Rather than tear others down to make ourselves feel better, what if we sought to build each other up so we could mature in the fullness of Christ? Ephesians chapter 4, verses 29 through 32 is going to be up on the screen. Listen to what Paul says about how we should treat each other. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. See, we tend to do the opposite of that. We tend to say the things that make us feel better. 
We tend to say the things we just want to get them off our chest, right? We want to vent. We want to say these things not for the benefit of building up the hearers, but for the benefit of kind of letting it out of ourselves, right? That's the exact opposite of what Paul says we should do. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. What if we could humble ourselves enough to treat people like that? Now, we may not be able to bend our knees right here and right now, but I want to ask you right now to bow your heads for a moment. And I want you to pause and confess to God, right where you are, your own pridefulness. Ask God to forgive you for trying to live and serve in your own wisdom and strength rather than His. Ask Him to forgive you for the judgmentalism and impatience and self-righteousness that you have felt, thought, or spoken towards someone else. Amen. What if we humble ourselves? Secondly, what if we seek God's face in prayer? What if we seek God's face in prayer? When we face problems, working on plans, we tend to think that more organizing is the key. When sometimes what we don't need is more organizing, but more agonizing in prayer. Prayer is the truest expression of humility. If we're going to humble ourselves, we're going to seek God's face in prayer. If we're going to not depend on ourselves, we're going to have to depend on the Lord. If we want to see God use us for His glory and His kingdom, we must be humbly dependent on God, and we do that by undergirding everything we do with prayer. That's one of our core values as a church, is being prayer dependent. That means that prayer, that that doesn't mean that prayer is some kind of a tool that we use to manipulate God. It doesn't mean that it's some kind of a fulcrum that we have to use to move God to action. Rather, prayer is a response to the actions that God has already taken. Prayer changes us. Think for a moment about prayer in your life. Think about the prayer in your family at home. Think about the prayer life of our church. When and where do we pray? Individually? When and where do you pray with your family? When and where do we pray together as a church? Are we praying expectantly? Or is it just what we do? It's just like this repetitive behavior. When you pray at a meal, is it just sort of the same rote prayer? Or do you really... Enter that prayer as if you are encountering the living God in that moment. Is prayer a regular practice in our worship? In our discipleship? In our service? In our homes? Our classrooms? Our places of work? 
Consider the ways in which you serve in and through our church. How often do you pray before you begin to serve? Because if we really want to see God empower our service, we need to pray for God to take and work through us. We need to pray before we do anything. We need to express our trust and dependence on God rather than ourselves, our know-how, our efforts, or our programs. Because we can have the greatest programs, the most beautiful building, the most talented staff in the world, but if we're not depending on God, what will it get us? Nothing. One of the few times we see Jesus get angry is when He is cleansing the temple in Jerusalem. In Matthew chapter 21, it says, Jesus entered the temple courts, drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, He said to them, My house will be called a house of what? Prayer. But you're making it a den of robbers. Jesus was angry because God's house was being misused. Specifically, the Jewish people had replaced prayer with earthly activities and were driven by their greed rather than God's glory. Above all else, Jesus wants this to be a house of prayer. We need to focus on eternal things, not worldly things. Yes, we need to be good stewards of God's resources. But if our concern and motivation is only for buildings and budgets and bodies in the pews, then we don't really have any reason to pray because we can accomplish all of that on our own. But if our motivation and concern is transformed lives, that people will, 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 will go from death to life and become disciples of Jesus Christ, that families will be healed and brought together, only God can do that. Therefore, we better get on our knees and pray. What is our concern? What is our motivation? What is our purpose? In our key verse today in 2 Chronicles 7, God is revealing a powerful truth about the transformational influence that prayer has on restoring God's people, our church, and restoring the land. That's our community. That's where we live. God responds and not only heals and blesses the individual, but God's response to our prayers will always have a ripple effect that brings far-reaching results. Just as our sins can have a very public effect, so can our prayers. When we pray humbly in the Father's will, with the right heart, one that is seeking the face of God, then it's going to make a lasting difference not only in our lives, not only in our church, but in our community, in our country, and in this world. And seeking God's face is the critical part of that point. It's not just prayer. It's seeking God's face in prayer. That means I'm not just seeking God's hand that He will do something. I'm seeking God's face. I am seeking Him. You know, if you've got a family member, maybe a a relative, a a child, a parent, and, and they live far away, they've gone off to college, or they're off in the military, or maybe you're the one that's moved far away, and you long for them, and you can't wait to see them, you want to see their what? Their face. You know, FaceTime is a beautiful thing because you don't just hear their voice, you can see their face. You want to be with them. It's not just that you want things from them. You want them. That's the kind of attitude we should have in our prayers. What if we had that kind of prayer life? What if we really sought God 
in prayer in Sunday school. Not just some perfunctory thing we do so we can get on with the lesson. But what if we really sought God together in prayer in Sunday school? What if we prayed for the sick and the brokenhearted and those struggling with with addictions or, or with family problems? What if we prayed for them genuinely believing that God was going to answer? What if we prayed every day for our church our church staff, our pastors and our deacons and our Sunday school teachers? What if we came early and we prayed over these pews or you prayed over the chairs in your Sunday school class? What if we took the church directory and every day we prayed for a different family by name looking at their faces? Maybe we would see spiritual breakthrough happen in the life of this church and in our families, and in individuals. Maybe we'd have a greater burden for our community, for the lost around us and around the world, and we'd be more empowered and, expi- and inspired to pray and to give and to go and make disciples. Maybe sinful patterns would be broken, addictions would be overcome, and revival would break out. What if we humbled ourselves, church? What if we prayed and sought God's face? And what if we turned from our wicked ways? The psalmist says in Psalm 66, 18, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. And Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 59, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor is ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. And your sins have hidden His face from you so that He will not hear. There's only one obstacle to the healing of our land, to spiritual awakening in this country, and it's not socialism, it's not liberalism, it's not materialism. It is the unconfessed sins of the people of God. Sin is a spiritual cancer. It is a disease and its prognosis is death. The wages, the natural outcomes of sin, Paul says, is death. And there's only one solution to our sin. It's not remorse. It's not regret. It's not even recommitment. It's repentance. Repentance. What would that mean for our church? What would it mean for you and I to really repent? It would mean that we quit ignoring God and we give Him our talents. It would mean that you quit neglecting God and you give Him your time. It would mean that you quit robbing God and you give Him His tithe. It would mean that you quit disobeying God and you give Him your heart and your will and your life. Maybe this morning you need to repent of disobedience in your heart to God. You know what God is asking you to do. There are people in this room right now. You know what God is asking you to do and you're failing to do it. You know what the Bible says? If you know the right thing to do and you don't do it, it is sin. Maybe you need to repent of unforgiveness and bitterness in your heart towards someone else. Maybe for you it's lying or lust, gossip, or greed, overindulging, or overspending. Whatever it is, in just a moment, I want to invite you to join me at this altar and to humble yourselves and pray and seek God's face and repent and turn from whatever it is in your life.
Maybe you need to grab someone in this room and bring them with you and pray with them and forgive them in your heart or ask them to forgive you. I'm going to ask the instrumentalist to go ahead and come right now. Because I believe with all of my heart that God is calling us to come to this altar and to pray this morning. Now, I'm going to be standing right here during this prayer time. Because there may be somebody in this room that what God is asking you to do is to join this church. You've been worshiping with us. You've been a part of the fellowship of this church, but you've never come to join this church. And maybe today God is saying, this is what you need to do to be obedient to me. Maybe there's someone in this room. You may be a senior adult, and you've never professed Christ through baptism. You've had a what-if monster in your head all these years. What if I go up there to get baptized and I make a fool of myself? What if people think, well, I already thought he was baptized. What if, what if, what if? Stop listening to the what-if monster. If you have never obeyed God in baptism, then you're living in disobedience. That is a first step of obedience as a follower of Christ. You need to come this morning and say, Pastor, I need to be baptized. Maybe this morning you're sitting here and you know in your heart you're experiencing the conviction of the Holy Spirit this morning. You know that you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus. You've been trying to get by on self-sufficient pride and self-righteous pride. Well, I'm a good person. Well, my parents were Christians. Well, I grew up in church. But you know in your heart you've never repented of your sins and given your life to Jesus Christ. I invite you this morning to come and experience the new birth and the new beginning that only Jesus can give you. But I know that there are many of us in this room that just need to come to this altar and pray. We need to humble ourselves this morning, church. We need to seek His face in prayer. We need to repent of and turn from whatever bitterness, whatever anger, whatever pride, whatever sin, whatever distraction, whatever idol we've set up in our heart. We need to dash it on this altar and renew our walk with Jesus Christ. I invite you now to stand As the choir sings, I invite you to come. Let's pray at this altar. Let's respond as the Spirit has led us this morning. Would you come? Come now. Come now and pray.